0: I'd first like to add my welcome to Harneys. My name is Pete, if we haven't met, and I'm a member of the congregation here at Inspire St. James. Before we dive into the passage that Diana has read for us, uh, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, praise ye for the power of your word to convict and change us. Pray that we would have ears to hear what your word is saying to us this afternoon, that we would be changed by it and be obedient to it. So, in sociology, one of the key concepts is this idea of the insider and the outsider, of us and them. The idea that if we're in one group, then we definitely can't be in the other. One form of this is the idea of the haves and the have-nots, where the haves say to the have-nots, we don't want you to be part of our club. We've all seen this on the school playground, from children excluding others from their activities and games. We've seen it on the streets of London with gang culture, where individuals are challenged to prove themselves before they can join a gang. We see it in London's exclusive clubs with their lengthy waiting lists and extensive privileges. Now, we can all see the tensions and the problems that this insider-outsider mentality causes, And we might be appalled by it. We might think, why the need for the barrier? Why the need for the segregation? But there is a danger that that same attitude sneaks into our faith, into our Christianity. And this is a particular danger with our increasingly secular culture, where Christians are a minority. We think, if we're a Christian, of ourselves as the insider, and non-Christians, or Christians who have a slightly different emphasis in their faith to our own, as the outsiders. Now, in this passage, we see the Pharisees have exactly this attitude. Let's have a look down at verses 1 and 2 of the passage. They say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them." So the Pharisees were the religious teachers of the day who prided themselves on obeying the Jewish law. They were community leaders that were feared and revered because they were seen as living the right way. On the other hand, we have the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors, they were a kind of reverse Robin Hood. They stole from the poor and gave to the rich. They were dishonest. They were also seen as national traitors, siding with the Romans. And then the reference to sinners, that's probably particularly a reference to those who are associated with sexual promiscuity or unfaithfulness. So the tax collectors and sinners would have been marginalized from Jewish society, the outsiders. And here in these verses, we have the Pharisees saying to themselves, why is Jesus spending time with these tax, tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus spending time with these outcasts? In short, the Pharisees are saying towards these two groups of people, we don't want you to be part of our club. If you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, then firstly, welcome. And then secondly, we've been working our way through these parables in the book of Luke. Um, As a reminder, a parable is a made-up story that Jesus told to illustrate a certain specific point. And so Jesus spoke these parables on his way to Jerusalem. Um, And as was mentioned a couple of weeks ago if we were here, This section of Luke's gospel is all about Jesus answering a key question that he was asked back in chapter 13, verse 23. No need to turn to it now. Um, But that question that Jesus was asked was, will only a few people be saved? So this part of Luke is dealing with the question of who is in the kingdom of God? Who's on the guest list? Who's in and who's out? Well, the Pharisees, they think they're a dead cert to be in. They're the insiders. And the tax collectors and sinners, they thought they were out. They thought they were the outsiders. But Jesus, in these parables, wants to turn these views upside down. Now these are glorious, really well-known parables, ones that we can all relate to We've all had that feeling of losing something. And Jesus' message is very simple. In response to the Pharisees' grumbling, Jesus wants to make it clear that the reason that he is spending time with sinners and tax collectors is because of God's heart for the lost. God wants to see the lost saved. So let's get into the passage now to unpack that idea a little bit more. And our first point is that we are lost sinners. We are lost sinners. Let me read from verse three of the passage. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. We are like lost sheep. When we think of sheep, we might think, about them, think of them as cuddly and cute and delightful. But in the Bible, the two key characteristics of sheep are that, are, that they are wayward and they are stupid. We know from our own experience that sheep go off on their own. That's why a farmer needs sheepdogs. That's why the farmer needs hedges and rows. I was recently in the Lake District, and what did we see? From the window, we could see a little black sheep that had got stuck on top of a rock. Also from the window, we could see acres of fine grass fields. So why had the sheep gone up there? Who knows? but clearly it hadn't thought it through as now it thought it was too dangerous to come down. It had wandered off. And we are are all like that spiritually. We do not listen to the God who made us. We wander off and reject him. So when God tells us that we can find true satisfaction and fulfillment in him, we ignore him and think that living in a big house or having a great social circle, will make us happy. When God says that a relationship with him is the most valuable thing that this world can offer, we ignore him, we wander off, and instead think of ourselves as complete once we are in a certain romantic relationship. As a culture and as individuals, we wander off from the God who made us and cares for us, Now in the passage, the Pharisees don't get that. Let's have a look at verse seven again. It says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus, in the second half of that verse, is being ironic. There is no one who does not need to repent. Those 99 people don't exist. But the Pharisees, they think they're good. They think that because of their good deeds, because of their obedience to the Jewish law, that they are saved. They think that God would be crazy not to let them into his kingdom. And how we can also be like that, how we can slip into that mentality of trusting in our own performance, Maybe we remind ourselves about how good our church attendance has been over the summer. Maybe we look at our bank statements and feel proud about how much we're giving to church or to Christian charities. I think there's a particular danger of us slipping into this attitude when we compare ourselves to other people at church. When we look sideways and think of ourselves as better Christians. So we think that we are worthy to stand before God. But those things don't change the fact that we too wander off from the God who made us. We are lost sinners. We are lost sinners. And this goes against commonly held views. The common agnostic view says, if only God would make himself clearer, then I would believe. We think that we are searching for God but God has not adequately revealed himself to us. And we like that view because it gives us an ego beast. We think, the problem's not with me, it's with God. But that view of the world would make this parable a bizarre story of a shepherd hiding behind a rock while the sheep search high and low looking for the shepherd. How ridiculous. Without God, we are lost. We are not searching. God is the one who comes on a search and rescue mission for us. And that takes us to our second point, that God is seeking and saving the lost. God is seeking and saving the lost. Let's have a look down at verse four of the passage. It says, suppose one of you has a 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. The shepherd, who represents God, sends out a search and rescue party for that lost sheep. The shepherd could have been satisfied with the 99 sheep that they had. They could have said, what's one more? What's one to have lost one compared to the 99 that I have? But no, he goes searching for that final sheep. And this is more than a token search. He goes after the sheep until he finds it. Or we'll look at the second parable at verse eight. It says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Again, this is so much more than a token search. This woman turns her house upside down in an effort to find the lost coin. And God does the same for lost sinners. So how does God do this? Well, he did that first and foremost through sending his son, Jesus. Jesus, who revealed God to those on earth and then invited people to follow him. And God seeks out lost sinners now through his word, the Bible and through the witness of his people. As the Bible is taught, people hear that invitation to follow Jesus, and if they accept it, come into a relationship with him. The story goes of an individual named William Mackay, who was born in Montrose in Scotland in 1839. He was born to wonderful, godly, Christian parents who longed that he would know Jesus and prayed that he would do so. He went off to university in Edinburgh, and when he did so, his mother slipped into his luggage a Bible with a verse written inside it. But when Mackay got to university, he soon fell away from Christian things. He got in with the wrong crowd and squandered his inheritance. When his student finances could no longer support his drinking, His thoughts turned to ways of raising extra cash. He looked on his shelves and saw the Bible and promptly pawned that for whiskey money. Yet Mackay's medical career went from strength to strength, and he became a trusted surgeon in Edinburgh Hospital. One day, an individual came into the hospital suffering from agony, from internal bleeding. But at the same time, Mackay was struck by this patient's serenity The patient talked about how he was looking forward to seeing Jesus in heaven. He said he was not afraid to die. And as he lay there on his deathbed, he asked asked for his remaining wages to go to his landlady and for the nurse to bring to him his book. Mackay wondered what the book was. Was it some kind of bank book? Mackay couldn't erase the memory of the man from his mind and later asked the nurse, what was the book that the man wanted so badly? The nurse rummaged around and pulled out a book, but it was no bank book. It was a Bible. Mackay looked inside and saw his mother's name and the verse she had chosen. Mackay rushed back to his office, fell on his knees and begged God for forgiveness. God is searching for his people. In the same way as Mackay, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then you can look and most probably see something of God's work in your life right now, of him seeking you. Now, we shouldn't necessarily expect our experience of God seeking us to be as clear or as dramatic as it was in Mackay's case but we can probably see God looking for us in our life right now. That might be in someone bringing us to church today, in putting Christian friends in our life, and in making the Bible such a popular book. God is seeking to bring us back. But God's business is, just, is not just in searching out lost sinners, it's also in saving them. Look with me to the two parables again. So how did the lost sheep come back to the shepherd? Look at verse five. They were brought on the shepherd's shoulders. And how did the coin come back? Look at verse nine. It was found by the woman. Jesus is teaching that the only way that we are brought back into a relationship with God is if God changes our hearts. He changes us so we want a relationship with him. God is in the business of search and rescue, of saving lost sinners like you and me. And he is so committed to saving sinners that he sent his beloved son Jesus into the world to die for us. Jesus died that death that we deserve for wandering off away from him so that we can be restored to a relationship with God if we trust in him. That is how God saves us. God is in the business of search and rescue. And this all leads to the question, why is God in this business? Why is God seeking out lost sinners? And the answer is because of his heart for the lost, his heart for lost sinners. You see, the Pharisees have been grumbling, why is Jesus spending time with these tax collectors and sinners? They would have have been outraged at the idea that these individuals would be saved. The Pharisees saw them as the scum of the earth, as just them. And that's because they haven't understood that God longs for these sinners to come to know him. That's what God's heart is for. God is like that shepherd, who's willing to go out and search for the one of a hundred sheep, because he values the individual sinner, for God, there is no one who who he thinks is beyond saving. So if we're here and we are a Christian, then we need to look look at ourselves and ask, do we have that same heart for the lost that God does? Do we have that same love and value for the individual? Are there individuals who we think are beyond saving? Maybe that colleague at work who's really hostile when we mention church on a Monday morning. Maybe that sibling who's consistently rejected Jesus. Do we see that God still loves these individuals and longs for them to come to know Jesus? How might we pray for them and persist in telling them the good news? And if we're here, and this might be very new to us, maybe this is our first time at church, could we be here as God is searching for us? We've seen how he is seeking and saving the lost. He wants us to come back to know him, to repent, to say sorry for wandering away from him and chasing after other things. Are we gonna respond to that call? If that's you, then I'd love to have a chat with you after the service. So that's our second point, that God is seeking and saving the lost. And our final point is that that this means that heaven is rejoicing. Heaven is rejoicing. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7 of the passage again. So, and when he, that's the shepherd, finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. I don't know what it is um, for you guys that gets you excited in life. Maybe that's the thought of a child doing well in their exam. Maybe the thought of tying the knot with our boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe the thought of uh, of England bringing home the World Cup uh, in rugby in Japan in October. Now these are all good things to get us excited. But looking down here at verse seven, God's heart beats fastest when sinners repent and turn back to him. Let me read verse seven to us again. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Have you guys ever been hugged by a stranger? Has anyone been embraced by someone they don't know? Um, Well, a few few years ago, I was watching a boxing match down in Clapham um, in a pub. It was between Vladimir Klitschko and Tyson Fury. Klitschko was the reigning world champion. He'd been unbeaten for 11 years. He looked fit and firing on all cylinders. In the opposite corner, we had Tyson Fury, who's from a traveler background, gangly in stature, on whom Britain's hopes rested. And it was a pretty tight bout. Um, Watching the fight, no one in the pub quite knew who had come out on top. But finally, it came to the time for the judge's decision. And their verdict was a victory for fury. The British underdog had come out on top. Cue pandemonium in the pub. The room erupted. People were ecstatic. Three different strangers hugged me. People were singing down the streets, chanting on the tube. And that is a picture of what happens in heaven when one sinner repents. There's a party, there is rejoicing. Heaven is in ecstasy. And why is there so much rejoicing? Again, it shows us God's heart and God's priorities. It shows us his heart for the lost, his desire for lost sinners to come to know him again. A couple of months ago, I got a message from a friend on Facebook. It's from a childhood friend. His name is Harry. Let me read out his message um, that I received. It said, Hey Pete, how have you been? Just wanted to let you know that the last few weeks have been a breakthrough with my faith, and it's awesome. Thanks for answering questions over the past few years. So Harry and I had been to play school together. Um, We'd been to church when he'd been very young, but then when he was in his early teens, he'd rejected Jesus. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And since then, he'd been pretty apathetic. A few years ago, we'd been along to a carol service together, and he told me that he thought it was ridiculous that we could trust the Bible But a couple of years ago, he'd seen his sister go to university and get stuck into church, and seen her faith and seen something really attractive. And after some intensely difficult struggles with mental health, his mum took him along to church. Through all this, I hadn't done very much. I'd caught up with him from time to time and prayed for him from afar. Later, he went along to a course at that church where he heard of the message about Jesus again and had the chance to ask his questions. And a few months later, he asked Jesus into his life. And speaking to him now was an absolute joy. To see someone so passionately speak about Jesus and his desire to share that news with other people, it was a cause of great joy for me. But the joy that I felt was only a fraction of the feeling that God experienced in heaven. When my friend Harry asked Jesus into his life, the angels in heaven erupted. They sang songs of joy. So if we're here and and we are a Christian, do we want a life worth living? If so, let's join in with that heart of God and look for and find the lost. Join in on his search and rescue mission The Pharisees say, why is Jesus spending time with these sinners and tax collectors? And how easy it is in a city like London for us to be like those Pharisees, to be content with the 99 sheep, to be comfortable with us and our Christian friends knowing Jesus without properly being part of God's search and rescue mission. Particularly in London, as Christians are in such a minority Recent research shows that as few as 9% of the people in this city regularly go to church, and a far smaller proportion would have a living faith in Jesus. And we see our culture increasingly opposed to Christianity in its rejection of Christian values and those who hold true to them. In this increasingly polarized culture, how easy it is for us to batten down the hatches to look at the non-Christian world around us and perpetuate that insider and outsider mentality, to exclude, condemn, or even just forget the non-Christians that we're spending time with day to day. I was convicted of this a couple of years ago. I was playing hockey down in South London, um, and uh, my teammates, um, who I was spending time with, um, I was pretty appalled by their by their chat in the dressing room. They objectified women. The way they they spoke about going out and money was pretty distasteful. And I think in my mind, I more or less ended up dismissing them as beyond saving. I looked down on their immoral lives. But that's just what the Pharisees do here. Do we see how short-sighted it is to exclude condemn, or just forget our non-Christian friends, as I did. God's heart is for lost sinners to come to know him. That is why he goes searching out for that long, that is why he goes searching out for that one lost sheep. And that is why he rejoices when one lost sinner repents and believes the good news. We have a joyful, relational God who longs for sinners to repent and come to know him. That's why our vision here at Inspire is about inspiring London with the good news of Jesus. That is in line with God's heart. So are we gonna love our non-Christian friends like God loves them? Do we pray and long that they will be part of God's kingdom? Do we wanna be part of God's search and rescue mission? We have the chance to get that party started in heaven Take next Sunday, we'll hear from the parable of the prodigal son, another amazing explanation of how God longs for sinners to come to know him. Let's be thinking about who we could invite to hear of that gospel message, who we can be praying for to come to know him. Let's draw stumps there. I'm gonna pray now before the band pops up again. Let me pray. Father God, praise you for your character, for your heart for the lost, the fact that you're willing to search for each of us, that we might come back into a relationship with you. Pray that we would understand that heart and that we would have that same heart for our friends as well. Amen.